I don't even think we had school on Yom Kippur on Long Island. I'm sure you did. We shut I'm down sure for all the, all the holidays. Yeah. You you shut down for like Tom Gadalia. Right? Yeah. Hello, Jews. This is Unorthodox, our third annual Yom Kippur episode. For the past two years, we've had special episodes in which we've talked about atonement, apology, all the ways that we make things right at this time of year when the gates of heaven open and hear our prayers. And we're back at you talking about atonement. I'm your deeply guilty host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by only one of my co-hosts, the newlywed Stephanie Butnick. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. It's good to know that Liel has nothing to atone for. Right. He's... (laughs) Or he has so much to atone for, he's like off in the desert wearing a hair shirt and whipping himself. (laughs) On a vision quest. Right. He's like on on an ayahuasca-fueled vision quest. So we're going to have to carry all the burden of our people ourselves. Well, not ourselves. We're going to be joined by three guests this week. Jew of the Week, Ari Cohen, who runs a blog about bad apologies. He's going to talk to us about what makes an apology truly terrible. Gentile of the Week, Mark Osler, is a former federal prosecutor, and he now works on clemency appeals for prisoners, and he's going to talk about what works or doesn't work when a prisoner is writing a letter to try to get clemency. And we're going to be joined by a friend of the show, Vanessa Zoltan, who is the co-host of the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. She is going to tell a true story about a family apology that didn't quite take, plus letters from two listeners about their own Yom Kippur pasts. So... Yom Kippur. Stephanie Butnick, what what is the holiday season for you? I actually feel much more aligned calendrically with the Jewish calendar, right? Like this idea of the Jewish New Year in in early fall. And as a young person growing up, it makes sense because you're in Hebrew school and the school year is starting and it actually works really well in like the indoctrination sense. It it schedules the year really nicely. Right. Um, And then for me, my birthday um, is in September, so I always felt like it very much was a time of renewal and and like a a very much a new start. And a lot of the times I would like my birthday would fall on Yom Kippur and I would just be like such a martyr because I was like 12 and I would like go with my dad to (laughs) synagogue. Your birthday would fall on Yom Kippur? Yeah. And I was just like, this really sets up like an angsty teen to feel very (laughs) self-righteous. What are the other kids doing on their birthday? Um, So yeah, we would go to temple. I mean... I love that there's a holiday in which we are just sort of forced to look at ourselves and look at it, the people around us and the way we've treated them. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know that we necessarily would do that. Um, my very good friend, Irene, who is a, fr- a friend of the show, obviously, she... Obviously. Greek Irene. She called me last year and she sort of said to me, you know, I wanted to apologize to you when we went on this trip last summer. I, I was kind of had the stuff going on. I was, she like was t- apologizing for something. I had no idea what she was talking about. You know, I didn't remember. She said, right, maybe right, I was cold. Right. Maybe I was, and I was like, I mean, are you Yom Kippuring me right now? Like it was <laughs> this time of year. And she was like, yeah, I was listening to the episode. And it's like, it actually is a really nice thing to stop and think like, what what have I done? Like what, what, what has been, I mean, of course, what always happens is the other person never remembers. I feel like we'll right. hear more and more of that. Um, Throughout the episode, like, but because I had no idea what she was talking about. But I was like, thank you. This is really meaningful because <laughs> we don't stop in our friendships and our relationships to sort of say, like, what have I done that's upset you? Or what what have I done that I feel mixed about inside and mm-hmm. that has sort of stayed with me? And Or to mm-hmm. think about the past year. It's just so powerful. I also think it's so theologically significant in terms of the way that Judaism is an earthbound religion. It's about what you do here on earth. You know, there's the famous story from the Talmud where God's saying, you know, it's not in heaven, it's down with you. Like, you guys figure it out. And I've talked to 
friends from other traditions, from Islam, from from Christianity and others. Some of your best friends. Some of my best friends are non-Jews. And I've said, you know, it seems to me that Judaism is the only tradition where atonement is primarily done person to person. I mean, not we, we in do, a confession, not in like right, booth not with in a confession booth. Like it's not that person, you don't yeah. have right. I mean, you you have to atone for sins against God as well as sins against people. But clearly, the emphasis in the Yom Kippur season and in atonement generally, and certainly this is true in in Maimonides, you have to go to other people and make it right, and that's and then and then God will say, okay, good enough. But the you cannot go into a confession booth and say to a, a a priest, you can't go to your like an um, anonymous face, basically, and you have to do it like, if possible, publicly. Like Maimonides says, you bring witnesses. <laughs> like you really have to say, like I am making this right to this other human being, and I. It's really one of the. I will say it's one of the only Jewish lessons that I feel like informs my daily life. I mean, when, for example, Sid and I have had a fight, and the kids have overheard some of it, or we've had sharp words with each other just in the course of like the morning rush. And and it's clear that I was the dick, which is not uncommon. <laughs> so do you apologize in front of the kids? Yes. Yes. I think it's – I mean, not always. I apologize when I get my act together to do it and overcome my own, you know, defensiveness. And But if at all possible, I try to say the apology loudly and in front of the kids. Like I want them to see that that's – menschlich behavior that yeah. you apologize to It's people. funny because I'm sitting here talking about like, I love Yom Kippur. I love the high holidays. I actually, when I was abroad in college, I spent one Yom Kippur at Oktoberfest um, in Munich. <laughs> and so so I just like want to like, you know, put that out there. It was like this bizarre experience. I, I've sort of felt, I felt uniquely guilty about ever since. But like, who do I apologize to for that? Is that a God thing? I, I I don't think you do. I don't think you have to. But it's it'll it's like part you know it'll be in my like memoirs. Yeah, it's in your right. You save it. You save it for your book. I have a I have a funny college story also about uh, Yom Kippur. I didn't know. I knew growing up when my family we weren't observant and and I knew that Yom Kippur was a fasting day, but I didn't fast and my parents didn't fast. So it wasn't until I got to college that I learned what it was really. And I learned about the apology tradition because a guy I'd become, you know, sort of friendly with in my first month or two of college, he came to me and he said, um, I just want to apologize for the fact that I've told a few people that don't really like you very much. And that wasn't nice <gasps> of me. And was he like, because it's Yom Kippur, I need to apologize? Yeah. Maybe he said, in this Yom Kippur season, I'm trying to make amends. Oh, and I no, realized little I realized I told a few people I don't like you and I shouldn't have done that. My bad. I'm sorry. Did he say like, and this- I do like you? <laughs> As I remember the mood of it, I think he was saying, like, I haven't given you a chance. I mean, it was we were four or five weeks into college. Like, we didn't know each other, right? He was, like, and funneling think, a beer as he did this. Yeah, I think he was saying, like, my bad. Like, let's, so let's guys, start anew. Did you? Yeah, I mean, we we were – I, I honestly was a little bit shocked. I was trying to figure it's out – hard to recover from that. I think I said, you know, dude, don't worry about it. And we were fine. And I, I saw him um, – I actually saw him at – uh, a synagogue service at a simcha of a relative uh, within the past year or two and like totally awesome guy. I mean like there's no bad blood but it was just funny because he was doing what he thought was the right thing and of course it – you know th- and and there is always that question um, Was it like for apologies. him or for you? Yeah. like That's a really mean thing to tell you. Maybe sometimes you let it lie. Maybe sometimes you let it lie. So, right? so do you think he remembers this? I bet no because in my experience – the slights that we remember are not the ones other people do and vice versa. Yeah, like Irene. It's like no one remembers these tiny yeah. things that we hold on to. Yeah, exactly. So before we get to Ari Cohen, our first guest, um, you and I are good, right? Like we don't – we don't. have I wronged you in any way? Um, probably, but I think we're pretty much like we, we – we, 
first of all, you are really interesting because you own up to all, like you you sort of let things. I don't know. Like we've had look, we produce a show. It's sort of like a high intensity environment, and yes. so there always will be like, why did you do this thing? I thought you should do this thing, or like you were supposed to send me this. But I do think we we square away pretty much every week. Yes. the way this the way yes. this show works. Um. So yeah, am I, are 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 you good with me? Have I done anything? Totally. To- no, but I'm good with everyone. I mean, I am totally good with you, but I'm not. You don't hold grudges. Many, I'm not. A, I have quickly. many flaws, but I am not a grudge holder. Like my memory is not good enough to hold grudges. <laughs> I've, I've stopped. I've tried to, you know, in my in my later years, I'm trying to stop holding grudges. It's hard. Like, but what the, what the difference is? Like, I remember this one, the, like the person f- from high school who I'm like, that's the person I hate. Like, that's my takeaway right, from. Like, right, right. I don't hate all these other stupid people. That's the girl who wronged me, and that's the one person <laughs> I'm gonna like just never want to ever talk to again. But like. That doesn't affect my daily life. And I've, I've narrowed right. it down to just one person. And right. like she encapsulates all the bad things. And 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 you don't see her. You don't, oh, no, no, like, no. She's I don't just see a figure most people from Great Neck. All right. Well, I'm glad we're good. Um, <laughs> well, Happy New Year. Should we get to a guest? Yeah, sure. Tell me, baby, what can I say, dear? After I say I'm sorry, so, so sorry. What can I do to prove it to you? I'm sorry. Our Jew of the Week is Ari Cohen, Cohen with a K. He teaches political science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and for years he blogged about terrible public apologies. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so tell us about this blog. You don't, you don't keep up the blog anymore, and you'll, maybe you'll tell us why, but, but tell us about the blog and how you started, how you got the idea of cataloging terrible public apologies. Sure. So um, the first class I ever taught when I was a graduate student um, was a class on rhetoric. And uh, we ended up talking a lot in that class about how to effectively make an apology, uh, especially a public apology, if you were someone who was prominent. Um, and this was, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, and then uh, back in, I guess it was probably 2012, um, I was talking with a student of mine in my office hours at Nebraska, and uh, we were talking about uh, terrible apologies that had been in the news. And at that point, um, the big thing in the news was Geraldo Rivera, uh, who kept trying to apologize for comments he made in the aftermath of the Trayvon Martin shooting. Um, and we were so struck by the fact that he, he, he just couldn't or wouldn't get it right. Uh, and at that point, the student and I decided together that we were going to start this uh, terrible apologies blog where we were going to collect these bad apologies because there seemed to be so many of them. And so what constitutes a bad apology? When you say he couldn't get it right, what, what was he not getting right? Well, there were a variety of things that he got wrong. He, he kept trying to make excuses for himself. He kept qualifying his apology. You know, he, he apologized. Um, if he offended someone, uh, the second time he actually uh, didn't apologize at all in his apology, and he said that it was other people's uh, fault, you know, for um, uh, you know for not really understanding. Um, so, you know, there were a variety of reasons why he got it wrong, and part of it was that I think that he, you know he didn't think that he needed to actually make an apology, uh, but he knew that he had to say the words apology uh, or. Um, or, or apologize or forgiveness uh, on the air, right? That that was something that was required of him. Right. The hard thing about apologies is that they're supposed to be hard. Um, it can't be something that's easy to do. 
um, because if it is, it doesn't work. But but what if like Geraldo, you actually don't think you did something wrong, but you like you know you have to apologize publicly. A lot of the things you've the instances you've documented are people in power sort of saying like, "Ooh, I I messed up. I stepped in it. Like I have to issue a statement." Do they count if if you kind of know that this person is just doing it because they have to do it publicly? If you don't feel bad about what you said or did, if you think that what you said or did was actually correct. Um, and then you know, other people took it the wrong apology. way or something. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in those cases, issuing a public apology, um, it's going to ring hollow because um, when you say, oh, I'm sorry it offended you, you're doubling down. You're saying, no, I, I, it's you. You're the one that has the problem, not me. In those situations, um, it might be better not to try to apologize. Do you have a favorite worst apology from your years of cataloging really bad apologies? Oh, there are a lot. Um, one of the ones that we, my student and I talked about at the time, uh, Kanye West's apologies um, around the Taylor Swift um, uh, issues that he had. Uh, those were those were pretty good uh, bad apologies. Um, there are politicians who uh, are exceedingly good at non-apology apologies or at deflecting to somebody else. Uh, there was one, gosh, I can't remember his name. He was some local GOP official somewhere who posted on Facebook maybe some racist uh, comments about President Obama. Uh, and then he apologized by saying that he was a, a very committed Republican at the time, uh, which I thought was <laughs> that- the strangest excuse. Um, for for having made racist <laughs> comments about the president, I'm actually going to start using that whenever I do anything wrong. Like if I, you know, forget <laughs> to clean up after my dog in front of a neighbor's house. Later on, I'm going to go back. I'm sorry, I was a Republican at the time. That's just going to be my catch-all. So yeah. you know, <laughs> past the apologies, sometimes people do bad things or say something anti-Semitic that it's very clear that they kind of like didn't really get it. And then they'll do their like ADL. They used to do their like Abe Foxman approved apology tour and and they'd study and they'd meet like a Holocaust survivor. How is it hard? Like, it's hard to not be cynical about those efforts. I mean, there was someone like John Galliano who, you know, had like a very anti-Semitic tirade of a bunch of years ago. And then he actually like did all this work. He, he, he met with he did the like perfunctory meeting with Abe Foxman, but it actually did seem like after a while he really was trying to change, and we just like wouldn't let him off the hook. And there was a time, you know, because at Tablet we were covering this, you know, very important story, and there was a time where we're like, just it's done. Like he 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 did his penance. Like we have to stop bringing this up about him. Like how do we tell what's genuine and what isn't? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's actually um, one of the hardest things for us to figure out. Um, when someone really does sincerely seem to want to change, to um, to atone for bad behavior, when someone seems to have really learned something and is going out of his or her way, I think then you have to say, like, th- this is someone who um, who really is working to 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 change the behavior uh, and to do better next time. Um, I don't know when the exact point is, right? Like when you let someone off the hook is going to be, um, you know, I think up to different people. Um, but I do think it's really important to to have that recognition, right? And to say like, uh, you know, this is someone who, who is making a change. There's no doubt. Ari, we owe you an apology. We called you two minutes late this morning and we're really sorry about that. And we also, you know, you had to get up at 7 a.m. for this. And I, I'm sorry right, about that. Right, because you're on the West Coast. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Yeah. Well, I accept uh, your apology. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, tell us the name of the blog, and my understanding is that you've you've let it lapse. And tell us why. Right. So it, it was uh, it was called um, Terrible Apologies, um, and uh, you know there still might be uh, a way to access it. Um, and uh, yeah, you know I let that and my own blogging lapse. I did I did this uh, for uh, 
well, my blog for a little more than five years and the Terrible Apology blog for probably three or four. Um, but the truth is that blogging, um, for me anyway, became a lot less fun over the last probably year and a half. Um, because the internet became, um, a, a less, a less of a fun place, uh, to exchange ideas, uh, for someone with a, a recognizably Jewish name. Um, I. Wait, you Ari know, Cohen, you're free- saying is, uh. <laughs> you're Jewish? Turns out. Turns and you've out got the K, which really is like it. added gravitas. Yeah, K- Cohen with a K is like, that's real, feels really biblical. That's right. Very serious stuff. Um, but you know, it, it turns out that, that people, uh, people love to comment, uh, which was great. I used to have really great conversations with all sorts of people who would drop by and say all sorts of things about various posts. But because I'm a political scientist, uh, it wasn't just apologies I was writing about, but contemporary politics and political philosophy. Uh, and the, you know, the ratio of, um, anti-Semitic comments, um, to interesting comments really changed drastically. Um, and so I'm on hiatus and, and perhaps it will come back. Um, at some point, sabbatical. I learned a lot from it. Uh, but yeah, I'm taking a blogging vacation or sabbatical. Ari Cohen, we hope you come back. We we need you out there cataloging terrible apologies. Obviously, our, you know that our colleague Marjorie Ingle uh, at her blog Sorry Watch also does that. But there's there's so many terrible apologies. We need you both on that beat. Thank you so much for joining us as our Jew of the Week on this Yom Kippur episode. And we we hope you have a sweet sweet New Year. It was my pleasure. Thank you, and uh, same to you. Thanks. Bye bye. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week for this annual Yom Kippur episode is Mark Osler. He is a professor at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota, and he's a former federal prosecutor. He now works on clemency. He played a role in striking down the mandatory 100 to 1 ratio between crack and powder cocaine in the federal sentencing guidelines, and he's the author of the 2009 book Jesus on Death Row, which criticizes the American death penalty through the lens of Jesus's trial. Uh, Professor Osler, thank you for joining us. No, it's my pleasure, and it's a perfect time to be talking about this issue. Absolutely. So let's just start with a little terminology. Um, clemency, pardon, uh, commutation, what, what are these different terms? What do they mean? And what do they morally imply? Sure. There's a, there's a lot of confusion about that. But clemency is a coverall term, uh, that when the president uses the pardon power, um, there's several forms of clemency that he can use. For example, one of the lesser used ones is remission of fines. If you were supposed to pay a fine, uh, you know, the president can free you of that obligation. But the two that come up the most are, uh, commutations and pardons. And commutation only affects a sentence. With a commutation, the president can say, you were supposed to do life, we're going to let you out now. And that's what we saw President Obama using primarily was commutations for long-term narcotics prisoners. Now, pardon is different. The pardon is uh, goes to the conviction that it frees the person from the legal effects of having been convicted of the crime. So not only are they unable, you know, they're, they're free of a sentence, but the rights that are taken away when you're convicted, like the ability to uh, possess a firearm, the right to vote, are returned to you. But then we have these famous political pardons of people who haven't even been uh, served any time yet. Uh, Joe Arpaio, right. obviously the, the, sh the sheriff in Arizona, but then Gerald Ford's pardon of, of Nixon and others, and Nixon hadn't been indicted for anything. So what's going on there? With Nixon, you could make the argument that that was for national reconciliation. And of course, that's that's what Ford put forward. And, and what a lot of people believed at the time was that for our nation to heal after Watergate, uh, a lengthy criminal trial was was going to be the antithesis to what was needed. Um, now, with with Arpaio, you have a, a different situation because you can't really claim national reconciliation. And yeah, you know, as you had with some degree at Nixon, you had an underlying problem too that with, with this kind of pardon, which is that normally the process, whether it's a commutation or a pardon, is that the person seeks that mercy, and part of it is contrition. Uh, that they are accepting responsibility for what they did. And when we were working with people with commutations under the Obama initiative, part of what we had to do was, was help them express not only contrition, but what, what harm their actions had caused within the community. Um, and that's missing here. And part of what we lose there is the spiritual value of the whole thing, because it's lacking that contrition. So, Mark, you founded the country's first uh, federal clemency clinic um, at the University of St. Thomas um, in Minnesota. What What are the kind of things that you guys uh, work on? Well, in, it was a really specifically founded for a reason, and, and that was that 
for a long time in this country, we punished crack much more harshly than powder cocaine. You've got the same sentence for one gram of crack as 100 grams of powder cocaine in the federal system. And then that changed. Um, in 2010, the law changed, and that was made more even. But it wasn't made retroactive. So you had, a, you had about 5,000 people who were serving time in prison who would be out today under the law that now existed. Some of those people um, were doing life uh, who, would, who would be free. And so when we started the clinic, it was to try to uh, advocate for those people, to try to get them free through clemency. Um, now, part of that was telling their stories, and part of it was going to the White House and trying to talk them into making a broader initiative and, uh, you know, with, with collaborators like Nikichi Taifa of Open Society. And ultimately that, that worked. The president did start a program. And our process, uh, was to take on the cases, meet the people. I sent the students out to spend two days in the prison with, with our clients and tell the rest of their story. Because, you know, what society knows is, is two things, their name and their crime. And of course, there's a lot that comes before that. But more importantly, there's a lot that comes after that. That so many times, once we got in there, what we found was a turning point in that person's life. Now, sometimes we didn't, and we didn't take those cases. But the people who had made a move towards redemption, towards reconciliation, towards healing themselves, um, those were the cases that we loved taking and that were most often successful. So you have sort of a fascinating journey because you started as an assistant U.S. attorney and you were actually prosecuting these drug cases. How how did you go yeah. from 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 you know doling out very harsh punishments to sort of getting on the other side of it? What was what was that journey like? Yeah, I mean, I I was a true believer. I was a, a student at Yale Law School in uh, Professor Dan Freed's sentencing class, and Professor Freed was one of the people who really drove the initiation of the sentencing guidelines in the first place. But then he, he turned against them. By the time I took that class, I was, you know, one of the few people that really was for it and for, um, you know, mandatory minimums, frankly. And, and when I was a prosecutor, I pushed for those. And this was in Detroit, where I'm from. Um, but something happened. And part of what happened was that some of the defense attorneys that I was up against would make what they called the feudal speech where even when the sentence was mandatory, they'd make the argument about how, how much worse this was going to make things in the African-American community, what it was going to do to harm that particular individual, how someone else would be in that person's place in the next couple of days. And even though it never worked, it was a futile speech and the sentencing was mandatory, it, it eventually worked on me. And um, I was convinced that, well, many of the cases and sentences I was pursuing were uh, were justified, that the narcotics cases, uh, especially the crack cases, we were doing the wrong thing. And when I left the office, I started to work uh, on the other side against that 100 to 1 ratio and ultimately for for clemency for some of these people. And of course, that, you know, that pulled me into a, a fascinating place um, where it it brought me into contact with, uh, you know, a whole new world of, of advocates and advocates inside prison and outside of prison. Now, you're an Episcopalian and, and you've written on Christianity. How does your faith play a role in your belief about clemency? And, and, and were you as, as committed a Christian when you were a prosecutor as you are now, or has that been an evolution as well? I, th I think it has been an evolution, and I think now I'm fortunate to be in a place where my faith and my work are, are really of a whole. Um, 
And uh, yeah, absolutely. That uh, you know, you look at the Constitution, and, and one of the things that that uh, you know really bugs me is when people say that the Constitution is is founded in Christian values or Judeo-Christian values. And, and the truth is, it's it's not a religious document. It's exactly the opposite. But there is something in the Constitution that does walk with my beliefs, and and frankly, with the the, the many Jews that I work with on these things. Which is that that mercy is a faith virtue, that that the way we treat those others around us, even those who aren't like us, uh, is is part of how we make the the world whole. Um, and you know, mercy is writ into the pardon power. That's what it's for, and we've seen that from from the very start. The first person to use the pardon power was George Washington, and he he, he led an army against the leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion. They killed some people out in western uh, Pennsylvania. And then when they were sentenced to death, he pardoned them. And that's kind of extraordinary. And that is something that goes beyond most other legal issues because there's such a strong spiritual element to it. So words like redemption, which is coming up a lot um, with, with, these, with these people, is there, is there a spiritual element to it? Like, is that part of how you, you do show that you understand what you did and that you, you are changing? Is there, is, is invoking God, is that part of both, both the personal process and also the, you know, like appeal process? You know, for some people it is, and for a lot of people it isn't. Um, I mean, I'd say it's, maybe when I say redemption, I'm talking about my own, too. That I'm the person, one of the people who enforce these laws, those tough sentences. And now I'm able to see some of these people walk free. But in terms of their own redemption, their own reconciliation with society, it, a lot of times it's it's not faith. It's other things. I mean, I've had two different people that I've talked to recently who were doing life terms and got out under Obama with a commutation. And both told me the same thing when I asked about the turning point in their life. That is, when I went to prison, I read a book for the first time. And then they didn't stop reading books. Uh, you know, it's not unusual for me that, that what I end up talking to people about when they get out of prison is literature. Um, and so it, it takes different avenues, but almost always there's, there is this turning point. Mark Osler, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. If people want to learn more about your work at your uh, clemency clinic, uh, where can they go? Well, if you Google my name, a, a bunch of stuff will, will come up, and uh, there's there's been uh, you know a few profiles are, are worthwhile that are floating around out there, and of course on the the St. Thomas website, there's there's information about the clinic and, and some of the things I've done. Well, a happy Jewish New Year to you. Well, thank you so much. And you know, just about being Gentile of the week, I was uh, a camp counselor at Camp Akiba in Pennsylvania, and I was the Gentile of the summer. Um, <laughs> the only Gentile working there. So I have to Wait, say, there's a good chance that some of your campers listen to, are listening right now. So we Absolutely. will we will put you guys in touch. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. All right, thanks, Professor. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. And, and if Mark Osler was your camp counselor, write us right to write us. us and let us know. <laughs> We'll send the mail on. Whoa. Oh, mercy, mercy me. All oh, things ain't what they used to be now. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north. Vanessa Zoltan is the co-host of the mega-hit podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. 
She's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and is now writing a book on Jane Eyre as a sacred text. She's a dog owner, and most important, she's a former guest on Unorthodox. And she had this story to tell about an apology that didn't quite work. My cousin Zoe is six years older than me, and we were raised like sisters. We went on vacations together. We did sleepovers regularly and Shabbat dinner together every week. I grew up worshiping her, her boyfriends, her dancing skills, her very strong work ethic, and her brown lipstick was amazing. When she got her driver's license at 16, she picked me up first. And as we got older, Zoe allowed our age gap to narrow. By the time she got married, which was 13 years ago, I was 22 and she was 28, and I really felt like we were friends. She treated me as her cousin, but not her baby cousin. Getting married was very important to Zoe. She grew up in a more conservative Jewish household than I did, and so at 28, she felt a real sense of urgency around getting married. When her boyfriend proposed, she was thrilled. She was in the car on her way home from her proposal when she called me that she and her now husband were engaged. And it was on that call that she asked me to be her maid of honor. Of course, I said. I was so excited. So as her maid of honor, I got straight to work planning her bridal shower. I had just graduated from college, so money was tight. So my mom helped me with the planning and with the paying for things. Thanks, Mom. A few weeks before the shower, though, Zoe called me. I was in St. Louis. She called from L.A. where she lived. And she told me that she was so sorry but that she and her fiancé decided to have a bridal party with only their siblings. She said that his extended family was so big and the politics were just getting so complicated, it would just be easier if it was just siblings. Great, I said. I totally understood, and I, I really did. Family politics around weddings are real. So a few weeks later, I flew out to L.A. to throw her her shower, and then about two months after that, I flew back to L.A. to go to her wedding. The wedding was a huge, fancy affair. But even in all the chaos, as soon as I arrived, it pretty quickly became clear to me that there was a bridal party. And it wasn't just of siblings. I just wasn't in it. I saw Zoe's close friends and her future in-laws, not just siblings, all wearing matching black dresses. I found my mom and I told her and she said, no, no, all of the black dresses are just a coincidence. Surely enough, the procession began, and I was right. It wasn't a pleasant wedding for me, but I didn't say a word to anyone about it. But even though I didn't say anything, the following morning, I got a call from Zoe sobbing and apologizing profusely. My mother had told my grandfather, who had told my aunt, who had told Zoe. Through her tears, Zoe explained that she had decided to go from no bridal party to one without cousins. The wedding politics around cousins were really complicated on her husband's side of the family. I told her that that was fine, but she should have just called me and told me so I wouldn't have been taken by surprise at the wedding. She agreed immediately. She said she'd been really nervous to call about disappointing me. She also said that she had a cancer scare a few days before the wedding, which made her too busy to call. Seemed a funny thing to say because the bridesmaids' dresses didn't look like they'd been thrown together in just a few days. But I asked about her mole. They'd removed it with clean margins and she was fine. Turns out it was a precancerous mole. Good. I don't remember exactly what I said on that phone call, but I know that I forgave her pretty early in the conversation. And I definitely did not forgive her because I'm magnanimous and it certainly wasn't because I wasn't hurt. I think I mostly did it because I like to be a little smug and superior. 
One of my favorite theologians, Stephanie Paulsell, says that forgiveness is a gesture of hope for the future, hope that people really can change. And I do think that that is what real forgiveness is. Mine with Zoe was not that. It was acceptance of good enough, not hope for more. It was a performance of forgiveness so that we could just talk about something else. And to be honest, there was just a little bit of spite in me. I thought to myself, well, now I know. I felt like she had given me information about our relationship. We weren't friends. I was still just her baby cousin. More than anything, my forgiveness was strategic. She would be in my life forever. There's already so much family drama. Why not just forgive her and move on? It would make everything just so much more pleasant. I might as well just suck it up and not care. It was just a wedding. But my mother, to this day, cannot forgive Zoe. I mean, it is 13 years later, and their relationship has not been repaired. They do not speak. They didn't acknowledge each other at my brother's wedding, which was two years ago, and that was the last time they were in the same room, even though they lived three miles away from each other. My mom will tell you that Zoe's betrayal was different for her than it was for me. Firstly, my mom helped raise Zoe. Zoe and her brother joined our family on vacations. My dad taught Zoe how to drive. My mom would say that her relationship with Zoe was different from mine and that my mom deserved better from her. My mom will also tell you that she couldn't stand the look of hurt and betrayal in my eyes when I came to her and told her that there were bridesmaids. And I sort of get that. I was embarrassed in that moment, and it had stung. And that's a hard thing to watch, someone embarrassing themselves. When 12-year-old Marsha Brady told her dentist that she had a crush on him, I had to turn off the TV and go scream into a pillow. I couldn't stand to watch her humiliate herself. So I feel for my mom. Now, when I come into town to see my family, seeing Zoe is just logistically difficult. She and my mom don't talk, so we can't do group things, and everyone has kids, so it's harder and harder to see people in the isolated silos that my mom and Zoe each require. So at this point, the person I'm mad at is obviously my mom. When in doubt, be mad at mom, I always say. I wonder, in truth, if my mom can sense that my forgiveness of Zoe is a bit fake, and so she's carrying some of my hurt for me. I wasn't hurt about the wedding. I was embarrassed that I thought that Zoe and I were closer than we were, and maybe my mom knows that. But then I think, stopping an idiot, Vanessa. Mom's pissed about 9,000 other things that Zoe's done, that my aunt's done, that my grandfather has done. But all of those things are complicated and a lifetime of hurt in a big, messy family. But this, on the other hand, this is so clear. That bride messed with my mom's kid. And no one messes with my mom's kid. Forgiveness is for those who hurt other people's kids. That was Vanessa Zoltan, co-host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast. That segment was produced by Ariana Nettleman. Hey, J. Crew. A few months ago, we put out a call for you to send in your stories of atonement and apology for this Yom Kippur episode, and we got some great, great letters. We're going to share two of them with you today. Stephanie, what do you have for us? Uh, this comes in from 
Sherry in, in New Jersey. Um, it's a sort of a, it's a, it's a really, really interesting one. As a teenager, my first paid job was to babysit my younger cousin when he got home from school. I got to his house before he got home and was responsible for giving him a snack, keeping him occupied, and generally making sure he stayed alive until dinner. For this task, I was paid $15 a week. In the mid-70s, this kept me in record albums and the occasional trip to friendlies and was well worth the effort. My cousin was in kindergarten and was generally easy to take care of. The snacks were good. However, one day he did something that got on my last nerve and I spanked him. We did not do spanking in general in my family, and I knew I was not supposed to hit him while babysitting. Now, he did not tell on me. There were no consequences. Nobody ever mentioned it again. But I always remembered it, and I always felt bad about it. My cousin and I remained close and kept in close touch. My family experienced a wave of tragedy. My parents and brother passed away, and he became more like a brother to me every year. But somewhere in the back of my mind, there was always this memory of having hit him, and I still felt guilty about it. One Yom Kippur a few years ago, I decided it was time to apologize and ask forgiveness. I worked up my courage, prepared a whole speech, and laid out my apology. He had absolutely no memory of it at all. In fact, he questioned the possibility that it ever happened. So I guess I was forgiven, though he is going to have to ask my forgiveness for laughing at my apology. Eventually. Oh, Sherry. I know. Let yourself off the hook. All right, I've got one. Uh, This one comes from Michael Cantor. He writes... My apology story is more about a friend of mine, whom I've known since I was 10, facilitating my apology to him. His father, who was also my orthodontist, died suddenly in his sleep about 20 years ago. I was just starting medical school, and one of our mutual friends called to tell me what happened. I actually bought a sympathy card, but didn't know what to write and never called. Even when I was home that winter and my mom suggested we go over to their house, I didn't go because by then I was too embarrassed and guilty. Though we'd see each other occasionally at mutual friends' events, we didn't talk except to be civil. Needless to say, we missed each other's weddings. About 10 years later, I heard from him. He was coming to New York for a conference and asked if I wanted to meet. It was September. We went out to lunch and reconnected like old times. I was finally mature enough to apologize for my actions and afterwards sent him an email thanking him for letting me atone for my actions right around Yom Kippur. Since then, we've always been roommates on our annual Vegas trip. He hosted my whole family when I ran the Austin Marathon, and we've been at all of our kids' bar and bat mitzvahs. Yours, Michael Cantor. That is so sweet. And it shows, it shows, Stephanie, that it's like it never is too late, right? Like, don't let an old friendship die because of some little slight. And that's actually the the rare example when, like, it actually did happen, right? Like both parties were aware of it and it definitely had consequences. And you know, I, I think it's it's very true. And for the other person who obviously experienced this great tragedy and didn't have a, one of their friends there, like to to then be the person who basically reconnects, I think it shows that it's the opposite. We need to do, we don't just have to ask for forgiveness. We have to accept others who are like, you know, accept the forgiveness or we don't have to just ask for forgiveness from others. We have to, you know, grant forgiveness to others as well. Exactly. Yeah, Maimonides says that if you apologize three times and the person still doesn't accept your apology, at that point they're they're the ones who are in the wrong. Like you 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 don't have to accept it the first time if you're not quite ready yet. Although it's good to, but if they come back three times with three witnesses each time and then you you still don't, then you're 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 bad because it's your job to it's it's a job to offer forgiveness as well. Like the point is for people to come together again. Okay, we thought that instead of doing Mazel Tovs of the Week, we would do some apologies or atonement uh, requests of the week. Stephanie, what do you have? So a few years ago, I moved into the apartment um, that I live in now in the West Village, and 
there was a, a broker who represented the apartment and who I had to you know work with and, and pay to to get to get the keys essentially. And he was he was nice. He liked Tablet a lot. He he actually came to the Tablet office to drop the keys off, which I think was just you know he didn't have to do. It was it was it was nice. And then of course I had to pay him the perfunctory fifteen percent, which was you know obscene. Um, but it was a you know totally nice experience. Um, and then he friended me on Facebook, and I was sort of just like, no, we're not like we don't need to be Facebook friends. This was like a transactional thing, and. I don't necessarily know that you need like that we need to have this connection. And so that was sort of my my gut response. And so I I didn't accept it. And and I sort of never think about it again except when I get a new friend request and I sort of see his name at the bottom and as time went on, especially you know it's 3 years later and he's, that name is still sitting there cuz I actually like I don't have the heart to decline it. So it's just sort of in this like limbo, this liminal place. Um and I feel bad about it because I'm just sort of thinking, why Why didn't I just confirm him and just, you know, forget this whole thing ever happened? And but part of me, I don't know. I just sort of I just at the time, it just felt like an important stance to make. Um, and so I just he's like he's there in my limbo and, and I want to I want to get him out of it. But I, I just worry that it's too late to confirm him. But I might do that this year. All right. I think you should. I think I think it's never too late to confirm somebody as a Facebook friend. And I'm at, as you say this, I'm clicking through, uh, clicking through all of mine. And I will um, I will add to that. You know, similarly, a fan of of unorthodox. This is this is my apology. Um, a big fan of unorthodox uh, came up to us after our taping at Beth Zedek Synagogue in Toronto, and he handed me a book that his father wrote. And he just said, you know, my father was this mid century Jewish novelist. Uh, you probably haven't heard of him, but I think you'd enjoy this book. And the book was called The Lonsman, and it was by Peter Martin. But I forget the son's name and I haven't been able to find him. And I, I basically have wanted to write him a note saying, I haven't read your dad's book yet, but it is literally on my night table and I want to read it and it looks good. And I'm so touched that you thought to, to give it to us. And this this just brings up all of the people who reach out to us because we are semi-public figures um, in really meaningful ways that we don't forget, that we actually carry around with us. But like the Facebook request, we just don't act on it. And in this case, I forgot the guy's name and email, but but this is really for all of you out there who have reached out in some way and we've dropped the ball. Um, it's not that we don't care or didn't notice. And it's, um, it's really sustaining and wonderful that you do it. So um, to Stephanie's broker and to Peter Martin's hey, Eli, son. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, was a, sorry. that was just a, do, a stupid thing to do. We'll do better in the new year. Ya te borré del corazón, ya para siempre. Ya te borré de mi existir completamente. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Please send us mail. It's uh, it's the highlight of all of our lives, getting your letters. And we read them all, even if we can't respond to every last one of them. But we do read them all. We talk about them. We share them. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. You can follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. We are on Facebook a lot. Just follow Tablet Magazine's Facebook page. Our executive producer is Alyssa Goldstein, and we are also produced by Shira Telushkin. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, and our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision is by Rabbi Jack Romberg of Temple Israel in Tallahassee. Kosher slaughtering by those not sealed in the Book of Life this year. We record at Argo Studios, which never has to say it's sorry, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.
the funny thing is, like, to me, New Year's resolutions, like the January, the Gregorian kind, mean nothing. But right. I do like at the beginning of, of you know at the high holidays, it's like I like to sort of think about what the per, who the person I want to be is. And it was last night I was saying to Ben, I was like, this year I want to do something. I actually have no idea what it was. I should have written it down. But I was like, I want to be more something, or I want to do less something. And so it's like, I guess it didn't take because I have no idea what it was, and it was like right before I went to sleep. Um, but yeah, hopefully I'll be that this year. 